You're listening to Impulse to Innovation. The Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Helen Mees. As a global community of mechanical engineers with over 120,000 members in 140 countries, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers has been at the heart of the engineering profession since 1847. The Institution's mission is to improve the world through engineering by sharing the latest news, views and insight into the creative world of technology and the people that make it happen. In part two of this episode on conservation engineering, Ian shares his thoughts on the value and legacy of the Heritage Awards and some of the ones that have had significant meaning to him. Why the preservation of buildings such as our own Birdcage Walk are so important and what his hopes are for the future of the heritage industry. Now, we're all feeling your passion as you're talking here today, Ian, and it's, it's, it's wonderful. But you, you don't just do this for a day job, do you? Your passion for heritage and conservation is also reflected in your active role within the Institution Heritage Committee, which you've mentioned a couple of times. So for those of our listeners who are not familiar with this committee, can you just tell us a little bit about it and what your role is? The Engineering Heritage Committee was founded in 1984, And the first chair was Professor Isabel Pollock. And now we have chairs John Wood, both past presidents of IMACE. And it's been my privilege to work with both, both inspiring leaders, both inspiring engineers, and both really supportive of of engineering heritage. I applied to the committee, having learned about it as a member, I applied and had a wonderful uh, conversation with Professor Isabel Pollock, and she kindly invited me to join the committee, thinking that my background and my uh, area of operation would add a bit more to the team, to the committee. And it's it's been, I'd say, it's been a privilege to, to work on that committee. What does the committee do? It 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 celebrates our engineering heritage, primarily. That's what it does. And the wards celebrate the contribution of mechanical engineering in our past and our present, and that's a very important uh, point. And what does it do? It recognises irreplaceable artefacts, ranging from, say, submarines to sewage works, railway lines, aircraft, all sorts of amazing artefacts and many more between. And the awards, um, they raise public awareness of the vital role mechanical engineering plays in modern life. And I think that's important to remember as well. And it goes back to what we talked about earlier, is that some people, some people often say that sort of looking back is comfortable being being comfortable with your past is easy embracing the future uh is possibly more challenging more demanding and 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 scary but if you if you look back and see where we came from uh, as engineers uh, if we look back from the pioneering days and apply that to where you are today you can't you can't look to the future unless you understand the past because they (laughs) They do coexist. Yeah. You can't dismiss one and, and have the other. They are they are the same. So that's what we do. We we are we are a conduit from IMICI, from Birkage Wall, out to the wider community, whether it be Parliament, whether it be conservation community, whether it be wider community. We we try to be we try to be that uh, we try to showcase industrial uh, heritage, and we and we we do that to try and inspire. Um, the next generation to become engineers but also 
we are very aware that many of our possibly senior members uh, are are connected to organisations who um, uh, are running cultural heritage sites, industrial heritage sites, and we we are there to support them as well. Yeah. Because um, we we are very aware that as as we touched on earlier on, it, it, in some cases it's the it's the older generation that are underpinning cultural heritage in, in industrial format, and and we need to we need to be there to assist them and um, and provide and, and just provide that 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 wider conversation. Um, and and as, as we both agreed, we both have a love for it. Many people have a love for it. It's how we it's how we help support, how we prop up, and how we how we move on as a as a family. That's that's, that's what we do, and uh, it's it's very rewarding. And, and we and we have a big reach. You know, we've we've had over 130, given more than 130 awards now since uh, 1984. This the 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 awards, the collection is so diverse. Uh, and I, I would encourage members to maybe log on to the site and find out more, uh, because there's, there's going to be something in your area, something up your street that uh, you might enjoy. Well, well, we'll certainly put a link to to the Heritage Committee's uh, pages on on the institution website. We'll put those into into the notes for for this podcast, so uh, people can can actually have a look and uh, and, and see what it's all about. I, I guess that there is one question I have to ask, and I, maybe this is a little tricky for you. But of the 130 plus Heritage Awards that you have given out, which one is your favourite one, and why? Oh, this is, this is worse than Desert Island Discs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's nearly impossible, Helen, to choose because I mean, it's an amazing, amazing array of projects, and and some actually very close to my heart. So I have to be very careful <laughs> how I choose. They're all amazing artifacts, all amazing projects because they all represent everything that's good about mechanical engineering. Yeah, uh, and. They all encapsulate what we've just been talking about. That's that's it. That's what they do. That's what they are. That's why they exist, and that's why they get rewarded. Uh, I don't know. Um, how could I mean? How could I not choose something like um, the old furnace in Colbertdale, the, the ironworks, you know, the cradle of the industrial revolution, and recipient of our hundredth award? I mean, why could I not choose that? Or maybe locomotion number one, actually driven by George Stevenson. Uh, in 1825, our, our first ever president. How could I resist that? Um, <laughs> or perhaps, um, I don't know, the Falkirk Will, for me, um, which celebrates wonderful engineering design, traditional functionality, where sort of art meets engineering. I mean, that for me is a is an incredible project. Every time I see it, sort of, I saw it quite recently, and again, it still has the same the same effect on me it's a piece of engineering it's a piece of kinetic art it's, it's working it's it, providing a function but it's so beautiful as well which is what the victorians did it, it might have been functional but it aesthetically it was it was next level um yeah. maybe we ought to think about how that sits into society today i don't know i've i've been naughty helen i've chosen three. Oh, okay and i've chosen these because cragside uh, large, large property in Northumberland, home to uh, Lord Armstrong, the most amazing engineer, had Elswick Works in Newcastle, 22,000 employees making ships and guns and all sorts of things. But it was the first house in the world to be lit by electricity derived from water power. Yeah. And I think that's a world-changing event. When you, when you, see, when you see how it was done, you see the location – 
when you see about the interrelationships between all the people at the time, Armstrong's love of hydroelectric power and hydroelectric power itself, fluid, fluid, fluid engineering was something that he was, you know, pioneered. I just think bring all those elements together in a household setting as a life-changing event, I thought for me is, is sort of, is, it's up there. It's, it's off the scale. I've also chosen Cacordi's Material Testing House in London. Maybe not an obvious choice for people. Hey. I know, I know Professor Pollock would love that. Um, but it's the world's first engineering testing house, and it was exploring and improving metal, metal material science. Right. It was at a time where you know, we were building huge structures around the world uh, and not really understanding the science behind the materials. We, we were acceptant that a piece of raw time would, would perform a certain um, job, and we, a piece of raw iron, cast iron together would do something similar, but actually we're not knowing how it might fail. So there's this man, Kukordi, from a came from a great lineage, great background, working with eminent engineers at the time. He decided, well, if I design a machine where I can test materials, maybe we can start to think about how things might, how we can make construction uh, safer. Yeah. Um, which I think was, again, a, a game-changing uh, event, a bit like CNC many years later. Uh, and in fact, I was, I was incredibly lucky to work with the founder's grandson, David Gacordi. I worked with him for many years and uh, an amazing man. And I think also the building itself in Southwark Street in London, it has to have my most favourite saying, my most favourite maxim in the world, where above the, the doorway it says facts, not opinions. And I just think that, <laughs> that is just the most one. And it's still there today. You can see it in the walk along Southwark Street. Um, and then my third choice would be Holland One Submarine, um, which I, we did as a, as a company. That was a, a job we completed for the Royal Navy Submarine Museum. And although that's very personal to me, um, from a conservation science point of view, it was an incredibly uh, challenging project. But here you, have a, here, you have, here you have a machine whereby they had the ability to marry the internal combustion engine with battery storage and motive power. And you put all that engineering into a steel tube that was only 17, 7 sixteenths thick, single skin, riveted together, and you submerge it. You put all that engineering and they put it underwater. I and mean, that, that takes some doing. That takes some, some, some nerves in, in 1900, 1901. And submarine technology and everything surrounding submarines and, and submersibles and engineering underwater – it all comes from that, and, and I think that is an amazing step change as well. Uh, I mean, when you think that when when John Philip Holland designed the submarine, he he saw how efficient it was. He realised how effective it was underwater, and he wrote in a paper, I think in 1913 in New York, he said, this technology is far too scary. It would be really, really, really ungentlemanly and underhand to pop up in a submarine and start torp torpedoing ships. It's just that's not how warfare should look like. Yeah. Here was a man, here's a man who invented the atomic bomb, if you like, and he, he just thought, well, we can't use it. Uh, it's, it's just far too, I say, too far too ungentlemanly. And he said, well, you know, we can use it. You can pop up to scare people away, but you should never fire a torpedo. And he went as far as saying, 
you know, submarines should be used for transatlantic travel underneath the wave base where things were quieter, where you could still play in snooker and have a brandy and a cigar. That's where submarine technology was going as far as he was concerned. How wrong was yeah. he? But those, those three projects for me, I think, encapsulate life-changing step changes in engineering. And for me, they sort of epitomise the awards and, and, and how we... How we how we give awards and how we how we look at innovation, how we look at um, historical events, uh, historical relationships, and that's where that's that sort of lays at the heart of 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 the heritage awards, yeah. engineering heritage awards, and of course they are open to the public, they are on display. The the story continues; it continues to inspire people, visitors, and maybe just if one person visits one of our awards and is inspired to become an engineer, it's done its job. Yeah, absolutely. And and they are beautiful plaques, aren't they? They they do get an official plaque that goes on the outside outside of wherever it is. And uh, I, I loved your story there of, uh, of the submarines, have, having worked on the Astute class submarine and, and also visiting uh, the Holland. Uh, I've, I've been to visit that. But also the, the uh, submarines that were developed in the one-seaters that were developed in the American Civil War, um, yeah. which is... So the, there's a wonderful history there and I've seen the preservation that's been done to at least one of those very early uh, 1860s submarines that um, most of the men who uh, piloted them died during during that but the the technology that went on into the Holland and then of course into the Astute so uh, there's a whole history there again that needs uh, preserving. The naval architecture the, the the quintessentially the shape of Holland 1 is exactly the same as the Astute class. Yeah. It's a natural form of a porpoise or a whale. It 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 works. If it works in wildlife, it'll work. You know, and and that leads me on. We we were we were so lucky. We were asked to to complete a project on a on a German one man submarine, a Bieber class submarine, and they Bieber class were built in the at the latter end of the Second World War to counteract the Royal Navy's um, use of the X craft, who were you know doing really good things, and from. From conception to, to launch of the first uh, Beaver class submarine was six months. And what they did was that they they took existing the Germans took existing automotive technology they were using on the front line in their in their trucks and wagons, and they they put a, a, an Opel Blitz internal combustion engine into the Beaver class submarine, not really thinking about uh, the effects of um, carbon oxide uh, on the on the person piloting it. But, um, you know, these, these submarines um, were one-way missions and, and they, you know, they, they, did, they just didn't come back and they didn't record one kill. I think they, they built sort of uh, 300 or more in the class and didn't get one kill during the war. But we were given one to play with uh, and we did a program with Channel 4 and also working with apprentices at the Royal Dockyard in Portsmouth. And here we took four very young apprentices, put them on the front line, put in front of a TV camera, and we deconstructed this Bieber submarine. We rebuilt it to running condition, operational condition, and we put it in the water and we played with it. And it was piloted by uh, a very experienced um, uh, rescue pilot, midget submarine rescue pilot working for the Royal Navy. And he just said that the technology, albeit incredibly crude uh, and very uh, basic, the the functionality of the submarine was better than his current multi-million pound submarine. <laughs> And, and working with a naval architect friend of mine, we, we, we proved that the design of the submarine itself was far superior to those of our X-craft. But because they didn't work out that you're going to get killed 
breathing the fumes of internal combustion engine, um, had they sorted that one out, that would have been a very formidable uh, piece of warfare uh, equipment. Um, but all the all the all the history books record Bieber class uh, as being a, a miserable failure. Yeah. Whereas through through an industrial engineering through a conservation engineering project um, supported by um, TV company and the Royal Navy uh, and the Royal Navy Submarine Museum, we were able to not disprove, but we were able to rework that whole history and actually come up with the fact that it was a good piece of engineering. So. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, in my opening introduction, I I talked briefly about our own building and the debate of whether or not we should preserve it. Now, I'm I'm not going to ask you to unpick that very complex debate, Ian, but more broadly, I wanted to ask you about why we should protect our heritage structures, not just those that are already aged, but objects that are relatively new today, should we be protecting them now for future generations? I I kind of think that you've you've touched on this already, but perhaps we could explore that a little bit more. Um, There's many parts to your question, Helen, and some are very, very salient uh, within this wider conversation. Um, how, How buildings are chosen or how buildings are selected or how buildings survive is sometimes by luck. Sometimes by fortune, some by, sometimes by a passion or a need. Some have functional needs. Some some have functional reasons why they or operational reasons why they survive. But looking back through history, why we chose to preserve so many ancient buildings or historic buildings, we'll never know. Uh, there are there are landmark buildings, and Birdcage Walk is one of those. Landmark buildings survive because they are viewed as having a significant contribution or recognition within the built environment. And certainly, Birdcage Walk is part of the fabric of Westminster. It's always been there. Uh, not always, but it's been there a long time. And it, it's it's one of those iconic buildings you walk past and think, oh, I wonder what happens in there. Yeah, it looks very important, very important building in there. And the reason I guess most people think it's important is because it's the way it's constructed. And those people that haven't been lucky enough to go inside Birdcage Walk, the exterior is a wonderful facade, but the interior is also incredibly important and wonderful. So buildings are, I guess, selected because of what they do and what they are and what they look like. Of course, we've got to remember we, we have lost so many iconic buildings over the years, certainly through the 1950s and 1960s, let's just say a huge amount of industrial buildings went. Mm. So we're looking at a lot of pumping stations, textile mills, factories, uh, a lot went. Why did they go? Because they were connected to an industry, possibly. Maybe that industry became defunct. Maybe that industry moved on. Maybe that industry modernised and that type of building was not suitable for emerging technologies. When I think about the Cornish tin mines, um, the, the steam engine was far more valuable than the building uh, and you took the steam engine out and you put it somewhere else. Yeah. Once you exhausted that mine, you moved the engine, left the building up. We, we knocked a hole out the front of it, took the engine out and off you went down the cliff and built a new mine. So that building got left behind and some obviously do survive and that's wonderful that we've got uh, that, that, uh, those buildings left. Other big buildings like where you had big steam engines and certainly beam engines, they were house built. So it was very difficult to remove because the beam engine was built first, the building was enveloped around it, 
Um, so when they got taken out, the buildings got taken down and they got lost. Mm. Um, so how, how we choose the future, that will be left to society, that will be left to, the, to a wider discussion between architects, cultural historians, uh, the public hopefully will be part of that debate. Us as engineers will be part of that debate. But why should we preserve them? Well, if I can give you just a very updated sort of very new sort of uh, analogy here, we might put it in perspective to people and sort of maybe prompt a, a wider discussion or wider debate about what we do with um, historic buildings. If you look at something like Windsor Castle, York Minster, both of which had awful, devastating fires, it was decided that they would be rebuilt, replicated, refurbished, uh, brought back to not their original condition, but to something similar, something close to their original condition. They were brought back because they were iconic buildings connected to the church and or uh, the monarchy and steeped in history and play a, play a, a significant, much wider role in education, tourism, culture, heritage, huge wide picture. And I guess they are obvious choices of why you would maybe uh, conserve or preserve an historic building. And they're still used, um, like Birdcage Walk. It's a functional building. It's not, uh, it hasn't outgrown its use. It still, it still is, the, is, is our spiritual home. Uh, and although there are changes afoot to Birdcage Walk, and it will move into its next generation, its next its next being uh, as a building. But I wanted to just touch on uh, Clandon House, um, which is it was built built for the Onslow family in the 1720s. And it was probably one of the best examples of Palladium Mansion in the country, and it was given to the National Trust in in 1956. That was devastated by fire in 2015, uh, and I have been. Uh, lucky enough to work on that project with the National Trust trying to unpick that building and how it might look in the future. And they've been in in, in, in a, uh, a state of um, debate since 2015 about how we should go about that. Not us, but how society, how the National Trust should address what is an historic building that's now been completely destroyed with very little left. Now, the obvious route would be to do a similar approach to maybe Windsor Castle or York Minster or other buildings that were affected by fire. So this question has sort of two two aspects to it. So with regard to Birdcage Walk, quickly, if we want to retain the historic facade, if we want to retain the historic interior, if we want to maybe modernise within that scope of works, but predominantly leave what is the original fabric and work with that and integrate into that into a new modern concept for what Birdcage will, will look like in the future. You're working with historic materials, you're working with historic methods, and you require traditional skills and traditional materials to enable you to be able to repair, refurbish, and indeed maybe change the look of Birdcage Walk. Yeah. So you need the skills to do that. As we look at, as, as I'm a key, looks at modernising uh, and upgrading the Birdcage Walk, there will be challenges ahead. All the major stakeholders, but moreover, all the key personnel who will be involved with the physical challenge that that will present. So, yes, we will need people that are very skilled at using traditional skills to, to address things like roofing, rainwater goods, brickwork, windows, 
uh, joinery, all that type of stuff. But there's also a need to have an engineer or an engineering group on board with the project who should be and will be consulted about how that building needs to be unpicked. And this wouldn't necessarily just apply to our, our friends next door, the structural engineers. This would also apply to mechanical engineering as well, because there'd be lots of mechanical engineering issues, whether it be heating, heating and ventilation, whether it be lifting uh, arrangements within the, within the building. There will be historic metal. There'll be historic structures within there. There'll be historic ironwork. There'll be all sorts of mechanical engineering challenges that will come up. And the debate, the discussion will have to be had as to how we deal with all those challenges and how we integrate it into a modern scheme going forward. Yeah. So there's a need to appreciate more than just the physical attributes and more than just the structural attributes of Burkhead Walk. We need to also address and be familiar with the conservation side of it as well, the conserva- conservation uh, questions that we need to be had as to what we retain, why we're going to retain it, how we're going to retain it, and how we're going to integrate it. And within within that within that scope, there are many many uh, questions to be had. And to have a to have engineers on board who have have uh, an affinity, ha- have a connection with conservation in its broadest terms, but certainly specific to Burkhead's what would be incredibly important. But going back to Clandon House, here you have now a shell, a burnt out shell, no roof, everything gone, just brick wall standing now. And you have this this incredibly strange image of fireplaces suspended four floors up, just hanging there. And yeah. Sculptures <laughs> with ingle nooks that are just teetering and that everything's arrested and everything's now stabilised. And, you know, I, I said at the time... Um, I was asked uh, about the future, not at high level, but just as a as a conservator working on the property and within the property for National Trust. I was uh, part of that uh, early discussions, and and I, and I maintain that you know um, the fire, however devastating, it, it has provided a unique and special opportunity, you know, to deconstruct the heart of that historic building. You know, with a forensic eye and, and sort of yeah. regenerate the architecture using a powerful mix of conservation, restoration and technical innovation. And, you know, this will be this will be really exciting and it will generate learning opportunities for heritage craft skills, which can only be a good thing. Yeah. yeah. So there you have you have a historic building laid bare. You're seeing the heart of the construction that you would never normally see in a in a in a, in a refurbishment, or a restoration, even a conservation project of historic building. It's never stripped back that bare, stripped back raw, where you could actually see the skeleton. You can see how it's put together. You can see all the inner workings. So this provides an amazing opportunity. And at Clandon, they will work closely with experienced conservators, heritage craft skills. They'll work with engineers whether it be mechanical, whether it be civil, structural. There'll be a massive mix of people there, architects, all working together to create a new vision for an historic building, a building that has been has been, has been assessed as devastated, stripped out, lost all its soul, but it hasn't. You know, that can that can come back. So there's no real comparison between the two, I, I, I Mickey, Burkhead's Walk or Clandon House, except they're both historic buildings. But the, this is that this is that the two extreme ends of two buildings and their life and where they are now. One's looking for hope, and one's looking for change. And all those elements brought together within conservation, with 
the unnerving confidence of engineers. We can, you know, we can put the soul back into a, a building that has very little left or regenerate new new energy within an existing building and and for existing uh, for future engineers. So it's exciting. I mean, one one thing that that sort of springs to mind, if if I if I can, which I think is very interesting, is the fact that you quite rightly move the conversation towards the built environment because you have heard of the term um, historic buildings and conservation in the same conversation. Yeah. We talked earlier on about the disconnect between engineering and conservation yeah. and why that might yeah. be and why that might continue to be, whereas conservation and the built environment come together naturally for some reason. Mm. Uh, we've all heard of it. Um, we all know about historic buildings. And that led me to be thinking why that why that might be the case and it soon became very apparent to me and this is you know many many years ago having thought about this and, and talked about it and written about it is the fact that if you look at the major stakeholders in the cultural uh, sector the two biggest cultural um, stakeholders that so would be English Heritage English Heritage Historic England or uh, National Trust they have a huge portfolio of historic buildings uh, thousands of buildings and you look at historic churches and look at royal historic palaces there there's a huge challenge there we we can see this challenge unfolding now uh, and i know you you've been very interested in this particular project uh, houses of parliament you know a very very complex group of buildings uh if you think birdcage walk is complicated um Pass Westminster is is off the scale. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the challenges they're having there with 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 degrading materials and all the infrastructure within all needs to be renewed, regenerated, and there will be engineers there working very closely at every level of every decision making. So you, we have in this country this this wonderful eclectic mix of historic buildings, and we have a group of custodians and stakeholders who are very proactive wanting to uh, make sure that these buildings pres are, are preserved and continue to provide a, a, a use. To do that, you need to have a huge skills base of people who are able to apply their specific trades to a particular project. So we are naturally, we are organically with, with, the, with the help and with the enthusiasm of the major stakeholders, including government, to grow this skills base so again, there are, if you wanted to become a conservation bricklayer or conservation stained glass window conservator or thatch roof or lead working, there are learning opportunities out there. Yeah. And you can, you can obtain a qualification and you can apply your trade and you can apply your learning and experience and knowledge to maintaining, to preserving, conserving historic buildings. And that has to be a great thing. That has to be a really good thing. But there, I think we've just illuminated what the challenge is. There is a perceived need, there is an appetite to conserve historic buildings like Birdcage Walk, like Clandon House. So you need to grow and you need to invest in a future skills base to do that because we've made a decision that these historic buildings are very important to our, to our society, to the fabric of our society on all many levels. Uh, and we've decided we took we've taken that decision to provide opportunities for people to learn and to grow skills to undertake those tasks. My question would be, 
why is engineering, why is mechanical engineering or industrial heritage possibly viewed in a marginal way? Mm. This is something I this is something that vexes me, something I can't come to terms with, and something I want to be able to be part of. I want to be able to elevate the discussion and this opportunity, this interview with you today has provided a wonderful platform for me to um, to start that discussion, maybe or restart that discussion. Yeah. Um, so that that I think is incredible. I think you you your question there your has really opened or closed the debate <laughs> <laughs> beautifully. Actually, because it's a lovely segue from where we started to where we came to, and I think that comparison between the built environment and mechanical engineering there is a disconnect, and I can't explain why there's a disconnect. But it's something I'd like to be part of uh, to, to try and mend. Yeah. Well, perhaps that that leads me to my final question, Ian, actually, because because I guess your role kind of sits on this pivot, doesn't it, between constantly needing to apply new technology and skills to preserve older structures and objects. So looking at, at the future, I guess, what are your hopes for conservation engineering as a profession? I'll say that in inverted commas. And what do you feel engineers could learn from the past to create innovative solutions for the future? Well, uh, my passion, my um, wish would be that we could provide learning opportunities for engineers or for anybody starting out a career or even maybe moving into a different career to provide opportunities for people to to learn how to, or to learn about conservation engineering and what that means in, in the context we just we just been talking about, but provide an accredited to provide a codified uh, platform where people can have the opportunity to either upskill because uh, there's a, there's a there's a need for people to upskill and a, an, an opportunity for people to grow to become maybe to position where I've become which which is afforded the opportunity to provide the level of expertise and support that the sector does require mm. and will require in the future. How we get there is something we talked about during the course of this interview. But we do need to continue the conversation. We do need to grow the debate and we need to find solutions before it's too late. There is, of course, a, there's, a, there's a counter discussion, which is that in the future going forward, Will we view conservation engineering in the same way I view it today, in the way we've been discussing, the way I, the way it's been part of my life for nearly 50 years? Is, is that something that will stand the test of time? Will there be the same requirement or the same perceived requirement I have for conservation engineers in the future? That will only be defined and influenced by how we as a society view conservation engineering, and that's part of that whole debate. I would, I guess, I guess, Helen, I would be so happy if there was an opportunity for an individual or individuals to experience to some degree what I've experienced in my lifetime. So a love of engineering, yes, a love of cult cultural heritage, yes, an opportunity to engage with the past, but in a positive way, Yeah. Um, add value to maybe an object or a site that has been left to decay uh, and re-energise that site and use engineering as that vehicle to do so, that would be really exciting. That's a huge, huge challenge. And that, and we are, in compared to the built environment, we are many, many, many years behind because attitudes need to change. 
if indeed, as a society, we believe they should. Yeah. It's not a given. It's not a given. As I touched on earlier, every single year now, we are losing, completely losing, in other words, extinct heritage craft-based skills. Yeah. Because once once there is no more need for a skill or a process or an object, once we reverse engineer an object or a process out of society, it's gone forever. Mm. And with certain trades and certain disciplines, who, which are disappearing so, so quickly, if there are no opportunities to, to keep that skill alive, to proliferate, the, the, proliferate that, those, those learning opportunities, it will be lost forever. And that's a decision we have to take. And that possibly is a debate the next generation will have or the emerging generation will have. But we have to be we have to assist in that debate now before it's too late. And I mean, pivoting between constantly needing to apply new new technology and skills to preserve ever older structures and objects. Well, that's interesting because I always remember having a conversation with an eminent engineer many, many, many years ago, and I was getting carried away about traditional way of doing things, doing things by hand, doing things by eye, using a rivet, making it hot, setting the rivet, and you know, being absolutely inspired by what it does and being part of that process. And this, this chap just turned around to me, and this is over a pint, and he, he sort of said, do you not think if James Watt had glue, he wouldn't use it? <laughs> And of course he's right. Of course he's right. You know, engineering adhesives, we use them every single day. Yeah. So although as an engineer, emerging technology, emerging construction methods and materials excite me, and sometimes you really want to use them. Yeah. Sometimes you have to remind yourself you're in a position where you're doing a project, you're working for a client, and their aspiration, their they're given is that you will use traditional materials, traditional fasteners, and do it in a traditional method. So, no, we don't put a bolt in something that should be riveted. Yeah. No, we don't use glue when it should be welded or whatever the case might be. So, <laughs> looking forward, it's quite an interesting, intriguing question because uh, the future conservation engineers, if a skill, if a discipline has gone, you have to replace it with something. Mm. <laughs> So unless we do uh, invest in preserving traditional skills, we will have to revert to using modern methods, which is kind of sad. Yeah. Because if you've got a thatched you thatch roof and you want a thatch roof, you're not going to put a tile roof on. But unless, if there's no thatches, thatch roofs are gone forever. Yeah. And you have to revert to tiles or slates or something different. But that will never be. I'm convinced that will never be. Where where I live in the south of England, we have so many thatchers now, and that 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 uh, pool of skills has grown dramatically over the last 25 years, which tells you that there are learning opportunities for thatchers working in the built environment because that discussion has been had and that discussion has been made. So there's a case in point. So I would I would despair to think that we can't put a rivet in a hot set rivet. In, in 50 years' time, 100 years' time. I'm, I'm hopeful that the preserve railways, amongst others, will keep that skill alive and pass it on to the next generation. So hopefully it will be protected. But you're right, Helen, that there is a, it, is, it is a pivot point. We are sitting between two, we're on a bridge here between two, two different paths. 
and how we go about that, um, how we address that, uh, is all part of this wider wider discussion. But yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting because um, I'll give you a really good case in point. Let's just say a client is insisting we use like for like materials and like for like design. So if you take if you take a simple thing such as a nut, a simple nut on a structure, and we have a thousand missing on a particular structure. And we know for a fact that this particular nut is half inch Whitworth and it's square. And the client says to me, please replace all these fixings exactly like for like. Delighted to. And you you give them a cost for that and they basically say that seems to be very high. How have you come to that? Surely a nut can't cost that amount of money. And then you say to them, well, we are not producing many half-inch Whitworth square nuts anymore. <laughs> and we want them to be square because that is the period design before hexagonal nuts came in as commonplace. Um, we're not using Whitworth threads much these days, although, of course, we are still using them. Uh, and Americans still use them in a, in, a, in a different form. So the client says, well, how much would it cost to put a hexagonal M12 nut in the same place? And the price is considerably less. And then suddenly you have this dilemma, which is cost-driven, which is do we go for what we should be using, which is 10 times the price of what we shouldn't be using, but because we've got limited funds on a limited project, we're going to revert to the metric hexagonal nuts. You could argue it provides the same function, the same stability, same tensile strength, but when that project is viewed in 100 years' time, if I put myself 100 years hence, and I'm looking at this job on a survey because the structure's rusting, and I say, oh, look, they were using M12 hexagonal nuts in 1850. <laughs> no, they weren't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we, we do have a responsibility to our historic structures. We do have a responsibility within conservation engineering to, to understand what we're trying to do, what we're trying to say, and what message we're trying to leave behind. We don't want to leave a false trail. Yeah, absolutely. If we do leave a false trail, documentation has to make that very explicit. So there are responsibilities, lovely caveats within that and a lovely question. And um, it's something that the, the next generation will have fun with. Well, I think I think that's a great point to end the interview, Ian. And and um, quite rightly, you know, the, this this is a, a discussion point that I think hopefully um, listening to this podcast today, people will feel the need to go away and and discuss this. Uh, and we we have a a great opportunity as an engineering community to to really drive forward the the preservation of this incredible history we we always talk about as engineers standing on the shoulders of giants and indeed in our 175th anniversary year that this is a great opportunity to to not only look forward to the technology that we have not even imagined yet but to look back and preserve the incredible technology that's got us to where we are today and i think that's that's great ian thank you so much for joining me on today's show it's been an absolute pleasure to listen to your stories and and the passion with which uh, you present this particular field of engineering thank you it's been great fun really enjoyed it thank you helen that's all for this month in next month's show 
we will be speaking with some of our international members as part of another two-part episode about global energy consumption, sustainable opportunities to address the climate crisis, and how China and India are facing significant challenges to ensure they protect their environments and their people. You've been listening to Impulse to Innovation, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to share any news or any feedback with us, then please email us podcast at imeke.org. All the information on this episode can be found in the episode notes 